Hello and welcome to the ITGP podcast. This is episode three and is part of a six-part series to bring you discussions on some of our hot topics, including business continuity, cybersecurity, and some softer business management and leadership skills. We collaborate with industry experts to produce high-quality publications about best practice frameworks, compliance, and technical subjects. Next up is Garant Williams. Garant is the CISO at the GRC International Group of Companies. I have personally worked with him for many years and he's here today to tell us about cyber threats and the risks they pose to SMEs. Please note that this podcast is an adaptation of a webinar which took place earlier in the year. I'm Garant Williams, uh, the Chief Information Security Officer for GRC, the parent group for IT governance, and I'm responsible for ensuring the GRC International Group and its component companies meet its mission objectives in a secure manner. I've been involved in cybersecurity for over 15 years and have a very technical background, and like nothing better than turning Raspberry Pis and Arduinos into hacking tools. I've been CISP qualified for over 13 years and worked as a PCI QSA and an ethical hacker in previous roles. So this webinar will focus on what is, a reason, what is reasonably applicable to the majority of SMEs, some of, you, some of whom will have uh, more resources. Majority of SMEs are actually experts in what they do and not in IT or cybersecurity. And everyone is at risks and needs support to protect themselves from cyber attack. So we're going to look at the threats and the threat actors, but to see who are they, who they are, which one's the most likely to target an SME and why, their motivations, and how this can vary with time and industry and how this will affect an SME. We also look at better what is security testing, how it can help, what is the minimum, and what is the best practice. We'll also look at the key areas an SME should concentrate, which is basically the low-hanging fruit that most of the attackers go for. For those who uh, remember sort of scrumping, those who go scrumping often go for the fruit that's easily reached and don't use specialised machinery to shake the whole tree. Many, many cyber attackers do similar for the, and go for the low hanging fruit of easy vulnerabilities that can be exploited. And we also look at the quick wins that an SME can do to reduce the likelihood uh, of a successful attack because it's not a if, but when you will be attacked and you quite often will be attacked repeatedly. So this may not be the cyber risk you were thinking of when you signed up for this webinar, but it's a very real reminder of the risks that an SME face and what can be the consequences for an affected company. In this case, the company that was uh, attacked or suffered the attack went out of business and all their employees lost their jobs. Ms. Bully is actually a cyber threat, uh, cyber threat actor. And this article actually reminds us that uh, the attackers and the victims are very much humans uh, with their own sort of families, responsibilities, and jobs. So before we sort of start looking at the threat actors, just have a quick look at what the Information Commissioner's Officer Office Data Security Incident Trends for uh, Q1 actually shows. Now the, the ICO gather all the reported breaches to them, which are the ones that involve personal identifiable information. And in the first quarter, 
uh, there's been over 400 incidents reported to them. This may not include the 61 ransom notifications between April and June, which was the actual blackboard uh, case, which broke in July and affected a lot of charities and educational establishments in the UK. So these 400 odd breaches, what did they consist of? Well, actually 75% of them were actually to do with phishing, unauthorized access or ransomware. There was also brute force in malware and other issues, but over 75% of the breaches fell into the, the, uh, the, those three categories. And some of those attacks are easily stopped by just applying simple hygiene, cyber hygiene uh, controls. And it affects all sectors. The retail mar marketing, education and childcare and the finance, insurance and credit industries took up nearly 50, were responsible for nearly 50% of all the breaches reported. But virtually every sector in the UK was represented and breaches were reported. So cyber attacks occur, they do affect every part of uh, uh, British life and we need to do something about it. So who are those that attack us? So we talk about threat actors, we talk about the risks they pose, but we do need to understand that uh, not all threat actors are actually equal. Some are more skilled than others. So let's start off by actually looking at what a threat actor, threat actor is. These are the people or entities or groups of people that are responsible for some form of event or incident that impacts an organization and the safety or security of that entity. These are the attackers that are going after your sort of crown jewels, the data, credit card data, personal identifiable information, whatever information you have in your organization, or it could just even be the resources, the IT that you have in your organization. They want to repurpose it for their own uses. So in terms of threat actors, it's actually slightly easier if we actually sort of categorize them. And there are many uh, forms or methods of categorizing them. These are the ones that I feel are sort of the ones that are appropriate to most organizations and ones that most of us will actually understand. So all the threat actors will actually have their own motivation for actually attacking an organization. And we'll be looking into that a little bit later. But we have everyone from the newbies or the script kiddies, as they're called, who are often starting out as young as 10. They're using low-skilled uh, attacks or scripts they found on the web or just following what they've heard from their peers about how to attack an organization. And these script kiddies can actually do quite sophisticated attacks. Last weekend, 2,000 e-commerce sites were attacked using a script that a Russian hacker had put online, complete with videos on how to use it, and was selling it for uh, that for a package for $5,000. So you have the script kiddies who can carry out quite sophisticated attacks with very little knowledge. We've then got the recreational hackers. Those are in it for the kicks and the kudos and the know-how, etc. And 
for most organizations, there's also the malicious insider, those apt out, those who are actually discontented and out for revenge. And we all know who the hacktivists are, those who are working to agenda driven by their social or political views when they're picking their targets. And then the biggest group that affect most of us, the cyber criminal. They're after making money or actually monetize anything that can be uh, either directly or indirect, indirectly that belongs to an organization. They will sell your data. They will actually sell access to your network. They will sell the usage of your own resources as part of a botnet. And then we've got the sort of the cyber terrorists, the corporate espionage that goes on and the state-sponsored attacks. So with all these threat actors, there is a sort of the motivation, but um, it's a balancing act between motivation and what disincentivizes them. And unfortunately, the disincentives are not very great at the moment. So the chance of being caught and the impact of being caught are actually very low. So this doesn't dissuade people from actually committing cybercrime. If we had higher detection rates, longer jail terms, etc., more meaningful punishment, that may dissuade some of these people from actually carrying out these attacks. But the motivation is very high. There's a high likelihood of excess and the rewards that, that will bring. So until we can correct the balance, there is always going to be this cyber attack against everyone, all the industry in the UK. Uh, a lot of uh, attackers actually, uh, th threat actors, go through a life cycle of actually starting off, uh, been on the sort of the, uh, the illegal side, the criminal side, and move throughout their life uh, towards being a more ethical one. And Marcus uh, Hutchins, who was the uh, the hero that sort of uh, found the kill switch that slowed down WannaCry, he was actually an ex-criminal, cyber criminal. He had written uh, malware. And although he had actually become a security researcher, an ethical uh, hacker, so to speak, um, and actually saved the NHS by finding that kill switch on WannaCry. Uh, while visiting the uh, US, he was actually arrested by the FBI for his previous life, effectively. Uh, and he was actually fairly lucky in that the judge took into account what he'd done recently and actually uh, didn't sentence him to any more time served than what he had done uh, already. But with his attackers, uh, there's a number of taxonomies that describe what they do, and I find them very one-dimensional lists because they never talk about the skills sets. So we actually have the type of hacker down the side, and then we've got the different levels of skills, more of a two-dimensional one. We have the novices and the cyberpunks just starting out, individuals who sort of, uh, group into gangs and collectives. And then we actually sort of move through to the more sophisticated professionals and the sort of the cyber warriors that are the sort of the uber hackers, the very skilled ones. And it's important to remember actually that the majority of attacks we see by volume are actually from the newbies and the script kiddies. These are actually quite easy to actually stop. So the threat posed by attackers is around their sort of skill levels. So the newbies, the script kiddies, they're responsible for the high level volume of attacks that we see day in, day out 
but their tax are actually not that sophisticated and there's actually a lower level of success and a lower level of impact if those attacks are successful. But as the skill of the attacker goes up, the more sophisticated those attacks become, the more successful they're likely to be and the impact of those attacks is very much higher. But they require skills, knowledge that the newbies and the script kiddies don't have and the volume of attacks is lower. One of the problems that we actually have in trying to protect organizations from attack is that over the time, you don't need to be skilled to actually run a, a reasonably sophisticated attack. In the very early days of, of uh, sort of hacking, etc., an attacker had to be really skilled. They had to write their own password guessing routines. Now you can download those from the actual um, internet and you can watch YouTube videos on actually how to run them. So as the growth of the threat has become more sophisticated, the skill needs to actually do them have actually dropped. The attackers don't need to be so skilled. What's actually happened is those behind these very skilled attacks are developing them and then selling them as toolkits for other, to other people. And this is why we get uh, Russian hackers developing an attack, creating a video and selling it for sort of $5,000 and then script kiddies are using it to attack uh, organizations' websites. So what makes an organization an attractive to actual uh, uh, an attacker? Well, there are a number of factors that would actually uh, influence the sort of the uh, the person who will attack you. So, you know, depending upon the type of industry, so if you were actually involved with the critical infrastructure, for example, then you are very much going to be targeted by the skilled state-sponsored attackers, etc. If you're actually a um, metal manufacturer then you're less likely to be attacked by this sort of state sponsored and more likely to actually have to fend off the script kiddies. But your profile will change with time. All it takes is one good press article or a bad press article and other attackers may come uh, after you. So if you cause environmental damage by having a leakage from an oil tank and damaging the local environment, that's in the press, that could actually cause your organization, your company to be attacked by hacktivists, etc. So there are lots of factors that actually affect your attractiveness to the attackers. And depending upon the type of attacker, it will be at different levels. So you can't just actually uh, identify your sort of threat profile and say, these are the people that are going to attack me. I just need to protect myself against those. You've got to reevaluate that uh, as that's annually or as time passes. So you can correct a threat, create a threat profile. So this is an example one for our pharmaceutical uh, company. Script kiddies are always going to attack every single organization. They're basically going to be the bane of life of anybody who's trying to defend an organization. You are going to get script kiddies. Recreational hackers are very, are very unlikely to attack a pharmaceutical company. But you will get the malicious insiders, the cyber criminals trying to criminalize them, as has been seen recently during the COVID-19 crisis. You would also get the state-sponsored and the corporate espionage going on. 
So you can actually work out for each of the sort of threat actors how likely you are to be attacked. And then you can work out the key areas and you can put the controls in place to actually prevent those attacks. So the threat profile will vary from business to business. So a metal fabricator will be more worried about the new being the script kiddie. The pharmaceutical researcher will be more worried about state-sponsored attackers, uh, activists, cyber criminals. And if you're a right-wing think tank, then uh, basically everyone's out to get you, uh, apart from possibly the corporate hackers and some malicious insiders, etc. So the threat profile varies by business. So this is basically determining the likelihood of being attacked and about the type of attacker that's going to attack you and effectively the skill level of those attackers. You can actually use risk models to determine um, the highest risks and there are many risk models out there. There are various methodologies such as the OWASP one if you're uh, um, doing websites. It's very much tailored for protecting a website. There is the CVSS scoring system, which will actually help you with sort of identifying the sort of vulnerabilities and the, uh, the risk from those vulnerabilities. But at a very simple level, you can take a common sense view about what is, who is likely to attack you, what sort of skill level they got, what sort of data have you got, what have you got that they are actually after, and you can work out what the risks are to your organization. If you need to do a risk assessment, there are plenty of organizations, including ourselves, that can actually help you with a more detailed risk assessment and identify sort of a risk registry that can help you. But you do need to identify what are the risks for your organization, and who is the likely to be attacking you, and how. So we talk about likelihood and impact when we talk about risk. And there are lots of factors behind these. And I don't want to go into detail about risk analysis, etc. But it, the, uh, the likelihood of being attacked really depends, the, risk, the level of risk to you really depends upon the likelihood and the impact. The likelihood of an asteroid hitting an organization and wiping out this building is very low. The impact of being hit by an asteroid is very high, but that's a risk you can uh, basically ignore. The likelihood of a phishing attack is very high. The impact of that can be also be high. So you do need to worry about the phishing attacks. And those behind the attack, it all depends upon their skill level, the opportunity, their intent to actually do carry out the attack. And the impact is down to sort of the operational cost, the financial cost, the data, the reputation cost. Even with a ransom attack, if you don't pay out the ransom, there's still a lot of cost there on having to rebuild your systems. So with all sort of attacks, there is an impact that you need to be aware of and sort of balance that sort of risk up. But for most of us, it's actually the, the simpler attacks that we can actually need to look at and actually to put the controls in place to stop. So you're actually more likely to be attacked by the script kiddies, the recreational ones, and these can be stopped by using simple cybersecurity hygiene controls. 
However, if you're at risk of being attacked by a state-sponsored organisation, then really sort of the protection you need is from sort of one of the cyber deities out there who can actually sort of offer the very high level of uh, uh, security controls that you need to stop these very determined attackers from getting into you. So you can identify who's going to attack, most likely to attack you. You now need to actually determine what are they likely to attack? What areas? How can we actually protect those areas? So the second item on the agenda was about security testing, which is the process of intended to remove flaws in your security mechanisms. Uh, what are the easy vulnerabilities that the, uh, that the majority attackers are going to go for? We need to identify them and actually stop those so that they can't be exploited. So in terms of um, attacks, there are a number of attack vectors. And for the more sort of technical review, I've sort of mapped them against the TCPIP and added the user layer. Why have I added a user layer to this model? Well, in reality, that is where most of the vulnerabilities that are going to be exploited are going to occur. So we need to be aware that's how users are going to be attacked. The applications they use are going to be attacked. The infrastructure that they are operating on will be attacked. Vulnerabilities can exist in any of these, and we need to actually find those vulnerabilities and stop them from being exploited. And this is where security testing will come in. And we can actually carry out security testing at all the, the sort of the layers that the attack vectors operate on. But a common and easy thing to do is a social engineering test. How vulnerable are your employees to a phishing email? Will they click on that link? Do they know how to identify phishing and prevent uh, an attack being uh, successful? So you can carry out simulated phishing tests and other social engineering tests. You can also carry out application testing to see what vulnerabilities are on your application. And you can carry out infrastructure testing internally and externally to see what vulnerabilities lay within there. And when we talk about this type of testing, we talk about vulnerability scanning and we talk about penetration testing. And they are two different things. So a vulnerability scan is actually about using an application to scan your uh, attack surface area and identify the vulnerabilities within it. It gives you a report saying these are the vulnerabilities, these are the potential impacts, and it will also give you quite often a rating such as the CVSS, which will actually tell you uh, the, the potential impact or that vulnerability if it's exploited. And for a lot of organizations, that is actually uh, sufficient. A penetration test, on the other hand, is about a simulation of an actual hacker. It's not automated. It involves a person or a team of people. They, do not, they don't just identify the vulnerabilities. They will try and exploit them. You can have a vulnerability, potential vulnerability in your system, but it may not be exploitable. An example of that may be in your sort of website. You may be using a JavaScript package that has a reported vulnerability in it, but unless you're actually using the, the 
vulnerable function within that package, it can't be exploited. So a penetration test would take all the vulnerabilities, try to exploit them, find which ones they can use to get into your systems and achieve a target that you set them. So basically the comparison is between them. The vulnerability scan was the process of identifying, finding and identifying potential vulnerabilities. They were then ranked them on a baseline score. It is basically an automated process that will take minutes, hours to complete. And it's a breadth over depth. It's looking at the whole of your attack surface area to actually see what you need to prioritize based upon your knowledge, the client's knowledge of resources and the knowledge of their infrastructure. A penetration test, on the other hand, is a process of actually exploiting the vulnerabilities, saying this one's exploitable by using this, I got into your organization. It basically will rank those exploits by the ease that they are able to, to achieve this. It's a manual process. A proper penetration test would take days, weeks to complete, and very large organization, potentially months. It's about the depth of testing. It's about making sure you can map the actual feasible attack vectors for the client to remediate. So there is a difference between them. There's also a difference in terms of the actual costing. Vulnerability scans are often are actually cheaper to do. Penetration testing is actually a lot more expensive to do due to the man hours and man days, man weeks required to actually complete it. So with this, bearing this in mind, a good practice is to run frequent vulnerability scans and then something like an annual penetration test. So you're getting weekly visibility or monthly visibility of the vulnerabilities in your system and your progress on actually remediating them and then getting a moment in time uh, snapshot of whether or not those vulnerabilities are actually exploitable when you do that annual penetration test. But what areas should the organization con actually concentrate on? So, when you look at the successful attacks, 94% of malware is delivered via email. Phishing attacks account for more than 80% of reported security incidents. 80%, and 60% of breaches involve vulnerabilities for which a patch was available but not applied. So this is starting to tell us that we actually need to look about our users and the way they respond to emails and about how we actually patch our systems and make sure that uh, uh, they are actually up to date and the vulnerabilities have been remediated. Business email compromises have been soaring recently and data from the Lloyds Bank data show that an average company is losing 27,000 pounds when they fall for these scams. A simple Beck attack is where an attacker will try and impersonate the CEO or senior member of staff, send an email saying, I need an urgent transfer. Can you transfer this amount of money to this company? We need to pay them immediately. And people do fall for these. Over 500 
Well, around about half a million SMEs were attacked in the past year using such techniques, according to Lloyds Bank. So again, it's about how do people respond to the emails they receive and the requests they receive? Can they identify the fake ones from the real ones? Ransomware is an increasingly um, attack vector. This is where attackers will actually get malware into your system and encrypt it. But they've gone even more devious these days. They will actually steal data before they encrypt it. They will then say to you, if you don't pay the ransom, we will release this data, putting you under a lot of pressure. And the more and the more attacks, ransomware attacks are occurring. You're seeing it every day. There's been plenty of instances of actually ransomware in the last six months, attacking charities, attacking uh, educational establishments, attacking pharmaceutical companies, along with other sectors of industry. And the majority of ransomware actually comes in through phishing emails, malicious emails carrying the attachments. So again, it's important to look at that user side. A recent survey of hackers at one of the conferences where hackers are known to gather, 84% said they would actually use social engineering as part of the attack. So again, it's obvious as part of the low-hanging fruit that you need to protect. It's actually the use your employees. So what can a SME do? The first thing to actually do is actually acknowledge that you're at risk. There are people out there who are attacking you. Some of them, it's deliberate. They're targeting your, your organization with things like the script kiddies, etc. It's purely random. What they're actually doing is picking targets at random, sending out a scattergun approach of emails to see who responds. But your organization is at risk and you need to actually acknowledge that. Then put together an actual cybersecurity strategy. What are you going to do to actually protect yourself uh, going forward? And then put the security where you need it. And I think most of you so have been listening to me so far will realize that one of the first things you would actually need to do is actually educate your workforce about email attack vectors, the phishing emails, the Beck, the Beck attacks, etc they are your best line of defense in stopping that type of attack. So you do need to train your staff to make sure that they're aware of what the risks are and the consequences. In the UK, we have the cyber essential controls. These are very good controls that actually stop or help stop attacks on the low hanging fruit. So actually implementing the cyber essential controls is a good way of protecting your organization because it involves patching using anti-malware, making sure you can only allow authorized people, changing the default passwords for equipment and making sure you've got a firewall between your equipment and the internet. These are very simple controls, easy to do and will stop the low hanging fruit. In addition to the cyber essential controls, 
what you need to do is actually train your staff. Cyber Essentials does not go into details at the moment about staff training, but this is the big thing that an organization can do that would actually stop a lot of attacks from, occur from being successful. So annual training about cyber security, social engineering for everybody. All the attackers have got to do is get somebody to respond to an email and they could potentially get a, uh, a foothold in your network. It doesn't matter whether it's the CEO who clicks on that link or whether it's actually a cleaner or a secretary or um, uh, an assembly worker on a production line, etc. If they click on that link and give the attacker a foothold, it can then be exploited and privileges escalated to take over the whole network. So you do need to actually make sure the attackers are actually, your workforce are trained on how to actually handle phishing emails, malicious emails. And the other thing to do is to protect your data. Protect it while it's stored, while it's been transmitted and make sure it's backed up securely. And by that, I mean, it's not commonly accessible from your network. This is about stopping ransomware, which encrypts your data. And if you can find your backups, it would encrypt or delete your backups. So if your backups are easily accessible from your network, it's not gonna stop a ransomware attack and help you to actually restore your data. So there are these additional controls that can be put in place. So the quick wins are about cybersecurity training, protecting against phishing. A lot of organizations will use Office 365 and just by turning on the protection within Office 365, turning on safe links, safe attachments can reduce the number of attacks getting through. Training, password management, making backups, keeping them secure, patching and updating software, firmware, and actually implementing cyber essentials. These are all things that are quick wins that can be done. So hopefully I've actually taken you through who the threat actors are, which ones are the most likely, you can work out which ones are the most likely ones to target your organization, and giving you some ideas about the quick wins that you can do to protect your organization against the majority of the attacks. Thank you for listening to the ITGP podcast. Please check back regularly for new episodes. You can also find us for your weekly updates on all social media platforms, including LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For all product information, you can find us at www.itgovernancepublishing.co.uk.